0: We translate billions of words today, but it actually all began with our very first paying customer who famously only wanted to translate one word.
1: They're designed to transcribe, translate, and display what the user is saying on the lenses in real time. Even
2: the languages with only a small percentage of speakers, you're still talking a few million people.
1: everyone and welcome to Slater pod on this beautiful late spring day here in Zurich. Hi, Anna. Hi, Florian. So, today we're going to have one of the language industry's mo- most influential leaders on the show, Smith Ewell, co-founder and CEO of we Localize, will be joining us shortly uh, and we'll talk about how he and his team built the company from translating a single word uh, 25 years ago into what is now a global super agency. So, stay tuned, we'll keep the new segment quick so you get to hear from Smith Shortly, but first, and we're going to talk a bit about Google Translate on stage. RWS remaining publicly listed, and the company called Easy Speak, getting some uh, some heat from uh, a judge in uh, your home country, Australia. Yep, that's right. All right, so. Just kind of breaking down what Google announced at their developer conference, uh, the I.O. conference uh, last week uh, in terms of Google Translate, uh, quite a lot of stuff that they're now productizing. Among it, they added about 24, no, not about, they added 24 languages to Google Translate and the kicker is uh, they're using that what what they call zero shot um, approach to uh, to actually uh, doing the, the translation, zero shot, meaning no, no data or very little data, I guess, uh, which is, you know, quite I mean, impressive. I mean, if no data and you do the translation, uh, impressed. Uh, so some of these languages, I, I, I got to admit, how many did you know, like in percentage, if you just read through the list?
2: I would say 30, 40%. There's definitely a lot there that uh, I'm not familiar with.
1: Same. I didn't know Dogri, Eve, Dihevi. I mean, some of them are really niche, like um, like Dihevi was is apparently spoken by 300,000 people in the Maldives, um, but then others are just kind of betray my ignorance, like Bhojpuri, I guess, is used by 50 million people in Northern India, Nepal and Fiji.
2: Yeah, they're really starting to cover India now, which is great, uh, but yeah, the, even even the languages with only a small percentage of uh, speakers, you're still talking like a few million people.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, in, in India, right? And so, and, and then in Africa, they have um, languages like Luganda. Apparently, spoken by 20 million people in Uganda and Rwanda. So, wow. Um, and one wh- one of the languages that that. Um, it's going to be super useful in, in Switzerland, It's Tingria, uh, which is spoken by about 8 million people in Eritrea and Ethiopia. We have uh, a lot of recent uh, immigration from Eritrea that there are Tingria speakers. So I know there's been uh, the Swiss authorities had had a really hard time recruiting interpreters for this language. So, you know, I'm not saying, of course, you know, use Google Translate as a. Uh, as the equivalent of, of a trained professional interpreter, but you know, generally just for interaction, this could be quite useful uh, to people. So, again, the zero-shot machine translation approach is uh, something they only very recently uh, wrote about in a research paper. I think we said it was January 2022 when they said they're using these kind of massively multilingual MT to translate more than 200 languages. And lo and behold, a few months later, it's already what they call in production, right? So, they're using it on... Uh, on Google Translate, which obviously is on online and uh, you know for use um, by by everyone. Now, there was a bit of a a problem during the launch. Uh, so, what happened? Can you just give us the, the thirty second uh, uh, rundown?
2: Yeah, there was what looked like a language issue. So, during the presentation um, at the at the conference, um, CEO uh, Sundar uh, Pichai. Was standing in front of a backdrop, and it was meant. The backdrop was meant to display um, names of languages available in Google Translate. Um, But as many commentators pointed out, uh, a lot of the language names were riddled with errors. So, for example, um, the Arabic letters were backwards and not connecting. And there were some comments
1: also on the on uh, the Swiss German. I read it. I was like, it. it, They spelled it like we type it in dialect, so it's not like there's no official spelling because there's like no official way to write Swiss German. But I was so surprised. I look at this. I look at the Google CEO, and then in the backdrop, I see like my little dialect spelled out in like my local Zurich variant. I'm like, all right. So apparently, the Google people, some of the Google Translate people are, are based here in Zurich. They have about 4,000 people, maybe even more by now in, in kind of their um, uh, Zurich presence here. So, somebody uh, added Schweizerdeutsch to the, the backdrop there, for uh, the Google CEO. Now, then of course, I went and, and and thought maybe they added Schweizerdeutsch to Google Translate, they didn't. So, it looks like not, not all of the languages they had on this backdrop are actually part of the launch or very few.
2: Basically. Most of the non-Latin or non-Cyrillic-based scripts uh, had one or, more, one or more issues.
1: I hope they're kind to that uh, marketing person that, uh, that was responsible for that backdrop.
2: It looks like it was more of a, more of a printing error or a lang- uh, rather than a language error. So it looks like it was a problem with the conversion either into PDF or printing. There might have been a font mapping error. Um, so anyone in the language industry is familiar with this, with this problem and uh, quality check would have been good.
1: <laughs> you did all the hard work and then the DTP gets you. So, yeah, you, you, you just launched 24 new languages based on super advanced AI technology, but the DTP gets you, that gets you the press. Uh, they also, uh, they unwield, I only saw that later, by the way, that those glasses. So the glasses that, I mean, they had this Google Glass thing like five years ago, they didn't really take off, uh, apparently they're relaunching some glasses, I don't know what they're called, probably pixel something. And they they will, they're designed to transcribe, translate and display what the user is saying on the lenses in real time. So there's like a nice little YouTube video, go check it out. Can be useful, uh, seems qu- quite useful that they have like uh, the, yeah the subtitles on, on your glasses. Looks
2: like it's still in the fairly early stages. It looked more like a teaser, uh, than really, than really presenting the product. So the video of the prototype, for example, presents a simulated view of the experience of using the glasses rather than showing the glasses themselves or showing, like showing directly how they, how they will work. Um, but yeah, definitely very interesting, uh, advance.
1: Why do you show us a simulated version? I want the real thing. Okay, so that's Google moving on to RWS whose shares have gone up or went up a month ago, <clears throat> kind of you know stayed relatively elevated and then dropped again by like 18%. Why? Because there was this uh, talk about a Asian-based, like a Hong Kong-based private equity firm called Bering that was rumored to be interested in buying uh, RWS, right, delisting it from the stock market. There was this one month um, period where they would have had to indicate uh, that they're actually going to proceed with a, an official bid uh, and Behring now said in a statement that they do not intend to make an offer for AWS. And then you know, a couple of minutes later, a response from RWS acknowledged that Behring is no longer evaluating a possible offer for the company, so that's it. So shares went up, traded flat, and now we're down again where they started a month ago. I think they're slightly higher, so anyway, good. I mean, RWS remains publicly listed. We get to dig into their filings and uh, uh, not bad for us. Then uh, the CEO uh, Ian El Mokadem, he kind of reiterated the goals that they set at the Capital Markets Day. They said the pillars of their strategy include accelerating organic growth, which currently I think is somewhere in like the single digits. Um, simplifying the tech portfolio, that, that'll that be interesting. So simplifying usually means merging, selling, doing other things. Uh, driving operational leverage, which is kind of a technical term uh, to expand margin. Then they commit to investors to enhance growth and returns. Um, all right. I'm okay with that. Thank you, RWS for for now, remaining independent and uh, well, independent, remaining uh, listed on the stock market and giving us all this beautiful information. So, let's go to Australia. So, uh, EasySpeak, there was a ruling in Australia. Tell us more about that. EasySpeak,
2: language service provider in Melbourne, Australia. Um, They specialize in interpreting. They're the incumbent provider of telephone interpreting to the New Zealand government, and there was a ruling by a a Supreme Court judge in Victoria, calling the sale of EasySpeak, which occurred in September, a brazen and audacious example of phoenixing. Um, So phoenixing is when a business shuts down to avoid debt and then reopens under another name to resume operations as if nothing had happened. So EasySpeak was originally owned by IntelliCom. Um, They sold EasySpeak to a third party technology fluency in September, 2021, before going into liquidation. Um, So this is the activity that the judge has ruled, um, was an example of phoenixing. And um,
1: yeah, the judge voided the sale. Phoenixing, when a business shuts down to avoid debt and then reopens under another name. So, all right. Well, so you basically just, yeah, you avoid your debt, your obligations, you reopen and you begin trading. Um, Phoenixing, a nice term, never heard that term. New legis- or
2: updated legislation in Australia as of 2020 um, to um, identify this type of activity. The main factor is the sale price. Uh, the main factor that they'll look at is to determine whether it is illegal or not. So, for example, EasySpeak was valued in February 2021 at 11.27 million Australian dollars, so about 8 million US dollars. And then by June, its valuation had gone down to between 100,000 and Seven hundred thousand Australian dollars, and then it was eventually sold for fifty-eight thousand Australian dollars. So this is this is the those are the data points that the judge was looking at um, when making the ruling. So basically, if yeah, (laughs) so if the new company obtained assets at what they call mates rates, uh, then the sale is considered illegal phoenix activity. Did they say there is that term mates rates? I don't know if that would what that's what the judge said. but unofficially, mates rates.
1: <laughs> mates rates. All right. Um, th- yeah, doesn't sound good.
2: Sator spoke to EasySpeak to get comment. Um, so they've, they've, they responded and said that the court is yet to make a final enforceable order to give effect to the judgment. Um, they themselves described the EasySpeak business as commercially sustainable, and they cited the fact that they'd had an independent audit by BDO recently um, and they said that they're considering the court's decision and deciding whether to appeal, and also deciding whether to uh, seek a stay or suspension so they can continue business as usual uh, in the meantime.
1: Oh uh, well, all that legal stuff. Um, they could have avoided a lot of that. Anyway, uh, not a great story. Hope hopefully no kind of linguists were caught up in with like bad debts. So. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll follow. I mean, if it it reaches that level of court, then usually, uh, yeah, those, those cases are covered by, by the press. So we'll, we'll let you know if there's an update. Now we'll head over to Smith and talk about We Localize. And welcome back everyone to SlaterPod. Really happy to have Smith Ewell join us today. Smith is the co-founder and CEO of We Localize, one of the five super agencies. So hi, Smith, where does this podcast uh, find you today? Hi,
0: Florian, and hi, everybody. I am in New York City.
1: This is my first day back to an office. Looks good uh, for the video. Uh, those who lo- uh, watch it on YouTube, you see a bit of New York in the background there. So, uh, nice.
0: We're back. It feels feels
1: good. Before we get started on, 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 on Shop Talk, just tell us a bit more about your professional background and how you got into the language industry coming from the military, right? You were an art- artillery officer in the US Army, I read, for four years. So, uh, how, did that, how did that happen, going from the army to language services? Well,
0: it's, it's, it sounds like an odd start, so I'll try to explain it. There were, there were two big things that got me in the industry. Uh, first was living in Germany. And the second was meeting my wife. So the first, I was stationed in Germany in the military. And being in Germany when the Gulf War started, I thought, well, because the Cold War was still happening. This was before the Berlin Wall fell. And I thought, well, they'll leave us in Germany. And the troops that go to the Gulf War come from the States. But in a very unusual move, my unit got pulled from Germany. And got attached to the unit that led the main attack in the Gulf War. So I was uh, I was there for six months. Fortunately, it it was successful. And the very first weekend I got back, the second reason I'm in this industry is I met my wife Julia. We met in an Irish pub in Frankfurt, Germany, and famously. We had no common language.
1: Then transition is to, okay, well, I'll start a translation company or (laughs) localization company, or how did that go? Yeah. Well, the
0: first part, as I said, living in Germany, uh, most Americans actually never travel outside the country. So I was very fortunate to be able to do that and got to live in Germany. And it was only when i was uh, on the outside looking back that it really brings home the point that the whole world doesn't speak English prior to that experience and I think that maybe a lot of Americans assume that well doesn't 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 most of the world speak English, but as we know that's that's not the case and so the idea sort of started uh, germinate from that and then when i met julia it really took off because we were experiencing firsthand Uh, we couldn't talk Uh, so the need to communicate and the growth uh, of the internet after all it's called the world wide web so we figured People are going to need to be able to communicate all sorts of different foreign languages on the world wide web. And off we went.
1: Off you went. So then you moved back to, uh, I, I guess, to the US and uh, you started the company from there, not not in Germany, or was there an original uh, seed sown in, in, in Germany?
0: We moved back to the US, which was another interesting milestone because Julia did not want to leave Europe. She's very much a European. and. Fortunately, she did. We got married just one year later after uh, we met, and then we started to work on this idea of helping companies go global. And this is another fun story. We translate billions of words today, uh, but it actually all began with our very first paying customer who famously only wanted to translate one word.
1: <laughs> Tell me more about that. That's a nice anecdote.
0: You can't make this up. It it really, it, believe it or not, that's exactly the way it happened. the, the first pain customer they wanted to translate. They called and they said, uh, "Well, we want to trans. We're selling our product globally, and uh, the name of the product uh, we want to translate it." And so we were kind of confused, but. We said, okay, and the name of the product was Pathfinder. So it felt like the, the, the skies had parted, and, and here it was. We're trying to find our way. Very beginnings of the company, and the first customer wants to translate the word Pathfinder. And we did. And our path from then on went into... Uh, this direction of localization, and now that's morphed again. So it all began with one word.
1: Pathfinder is an interesting one. I could go on a linguistic thing, but if you word for word translated into German, it would mean like something like Boy Scout or Girl Scout. Um, just t- the two words. Uh, uh, anyway. it was a
0: It was an oil refinery drilling product. So you drop it into wells and it helps. The uh, exploration uh for oil that's that's what the product was okay
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> uh i hope you charged more than uh 15 cents for the translation <laughs> well that
0: was the challenge what uh, what were we going to charge them because call it 20 cents a word uh
1: i don't know <laughs> a dollar a language Let's fast forward, let's fast forward. A lot of the listeners probably know we localize, probably most of them, of course, but still, like where you at from Pathfinder to now, you mentioned like billions of words. so like where where are you now? you actually have a, a kind of a global marketing arm now as well that would we'll probably be happy to do the Pathfinder project for a a, a good consulting fee, but uh take us forward. 25 years, like what are the key services now? Could a geographic footprint, leadership team, just for, for people to understand the, the, the scale and the size of we localize today?
0: Well, we've been just super fortunate to keep on growing from the very beginning, just two of us to well over 2,000 employees today, all over, all over the world in Asia, Europe, America. We last year did about 300 million in revenue. We're on our third private equity investor, which is also pretty rare. uh, rare, uh, But that's really worked out well for us. Our leadership team's all over the world. Uh, We were distributed even before the pandemic. uh, So, we're used to that. And uh, we're incredibly proud of the team and and where we are today. It's come so far from that that first word.
1: Now, let's do the path here. So, you've seen a lot of waves of technology, of kind of major clients of, you know, like from, I don't know, the the translating localizing windows to now everything on SaaS to all these, uh, you know, regulator becoming much more important. Like what have been some of the kind of key milestones and challenges for you over the past uh, quarter century, uh, top three, four or five that, that you felt were kind of transformative for you in the business?
0: Well, there's definitely a wave that coincided with the dot-com wave. I remember uh, eTranslate back in the day and E-Translate uh, raised a bunch of money. And the whole idea was that you could do it all uh, automatically on the internet, get anything translated and it was all just going to happen magically. Uh, that didn't quite work out. TMS's translation management systems also took off. You had Uniscape, you had Global Site, you had EDM, and they were all getting off the ground. Uh, those didn't work out that well either. Uh, so that wave was very experimental and then compare that to now where those technologies have, have really matured and there's, there's lots of of great companies in that space. Curiously, I don't see any of them in the rankings. So I don't know if it's these technology companies that want to report their revenue or what's going on, but it is interesting to see 25 years later because, as you know, this is our 25th anniversary, which we're really proud of, of the company. I, I have never seen a, a tech-only company in any top 10 ranking, so that's curious.
1: That is interesting. I mean, it's... uh probably high margin, but harder to scale and fully automating the process as we all know, it's just super hard. I mean, you're working in all these super complex industries like life sciences, med tech, uh, you know, software and tech, global marketing. This is very complex uh, and it's very complex to manage. I mean, for you to wrap your head around all of these different client segments, how do you do that? Like, how do you understand all these different pain points from from the clients? I remember that back from my LSP days. like. Understanding what a live census company does and then you turn around and you talk to an investment banker about translation of a pitch book is kind of mentally taxing. So, but you got to manage this at scale. Tell me a bit more about that.
0: Well, the first phase as I was describing was very experimental and we were experimenting as well and we failed. So right out of the gate, uh, we brought our first investor in, in, in 2000, the summer of 2000. And the whole premise was we were going to to ramp up the company and also automate and build out a a global sales team. And we went out and spent a bunch of money that we we raised from our first private equity investor, and then everything changed overnight in the beginning of twenty of uh, two thousand one. The bu- the internet bubble burst. Our biggest client went bankrupt. And we had to cut two thirds of the company. So, so right out of the gate, uh, unfortunately we had our first big failure and we had to recover from that. From there, we fortunately did, we made some really tough decisions earlier. Those were the toughest things I've ever had to do, uh, cause at the beginning of a startup, you hire, you know, hire a lot of your friends, uh, and we had to make some of those tough choices. Uh, the second phase was really starting to see that experimentation mature around automation. Because my first big client uh, after the, after the Pathfinder client uh, was Cisco, and they had a they had a product six languages, and the only reason we won it was because we were using uh, Tratos. And we met a little company in Germany that had created all these innovative macros to process files. This was back when you would get the source visual basic files. Get a whole lot of the, the, the source code back then, uh, which you don't do today. So that maturation phase was around technologies with translation memory leading the way. That was, that was, those were early days of the adoption of that technology. Not many translators were, were even using it. So that helped us differentiate at the beginning, right with Cisco. And they're still one of our our top clients 25 years later and other technologies started to come on to play. But the challenge was there was, there was no interoperability. So we were one of the first companies with a number of others. We formed this initiative called Interoperability Now, and we were starting to work closely to try to get uh, exchange between different systems. Because we localized, took the view, which is sort of novel at the time, we weren't going to create a walled garden around technology. We wanted to open it up. We wanted to be able to offer it, a customer to use any technology they wanted, and we would build around multiple products. So that that's what that second phase was really all about, seeing the technologies actually mature in their capability and then learning how to collaborate, create connectors, use standards to create co- connectors, and we led a number of those initiatives.
1: So you mentioned that, that the walled garden, like avoiding avoiding that, right? And kind of running more of a... I don't know best of breed for language tech so you, but you you have a, a quite a strong internal piece of kind of ERP like a core that you're building around and you're you're adding uh the uh, these additional systems to it can you tell us a bit more about that like how you um created that that core and then yeah that that open approach because there's this discussion in industry of course like do you just want to own everything or do you want to kind of again like depending on the customer's needs uh, deploy. Um, yeah, that that, that would be an interesting discussion.
0: We had a fun debate many years ago. It was at a uh, Talos conference, and my myself and the CTO, Chief Technology Officer, uh, SDL at the time, we got up on stage and devote uh, debated the uh, the walled garden approach uh, because SDL at the time was very much proprietary products, and even getting the APIs was difficult. We, we took a different view and, and have stuck to that view ever since. We very much want to create technologies that can, from prospecting with a customer, in our case, that's Salesforce, all the way through to invoicing and, and collecting from a customer fully digitized. But the only way to do that is through, an, I believe, through a through an open environment where you're connecting best of breed of products. So that whole initiative in the beginning, which we helped lead called interoperability now was about connectors. So our system Pantheon to give you some perspective today has over 200 connectors to client systems, to our competitor systems, to third party systems, uh, such as uh, Microsoft products, Workday, uh, and that's how that ecosystem has evolved, that open garden, uh, that's been the approach we took.
1: When you think about these, uh, what the industry still uh, calls cat tools, I, w- I was trying to steer everybody away for the past few years to calling them like translation productivity tool, totally failed. Everybody still writes cat tools, but let's assume cat tools, TMSs, etc. When you think about those tools and connecting them, like isn't it super hard to maintain a dozen different technologies also from a workflow perspective, a billing perspective, a quoting perspective, and then maintaining them among like a, a large distributed uh, language space that you have?
0: It It is super hard. You're correct. And you, a whole lot of work and investment has to go into those connectors. Is there a way around it? I used to think we could probably get there if we could get the industry as a whole to adopt certain specific standards to make that much easier. That was harder than we thought. Get getting a whole lot of competitive companies to agree just wasn't entirely possible. So it didn't really happen. What does that leave us today? Uh, there's no way around from a translator. All the way through, but it's not just translators, anyone working on a task. Because actually only about half of the we localized tasks we do today are are translation. That's interesting how that's evolved also. But everyone wants their own work surface. Everyone's comfortable with where they're most productive. So we've got to try to enable that experience so it's easy for them to do the work, that's the approach we've taken.
1: Yeah, and I think a company of your sizes um, probably less, it's less of a challenge than if you're like a $30 million company because you can deploy resources they can right, so they're just, if you're smaller, you, you probably struggle a lot with that, that complexity. Um, you, you mentioned that only half of the tasks now are translation tasks, so What's the other half, is it uh, around your AI training data services, for example, or what, and tell us a bit more about that and maybe what are some of the other uh, lines of business that you're in? The interesting thing is we started in localization. That's about a little bit
0: more than a third of our business. So that means 10 years ago, we weren't even in two thirds of our revenue. That's how things have evolved. It's, a, it's incredible. And as I said, maybe half our tasks are, are translation-oriented today. So what are they? Well, we're, we're trying to create uh, the ability for a customer on their global journey to, to have a guide, uh, a trusted partner, almost a travel agent, for lack of a better word. You're going to a new country. You don't speak the language. You don't know where to go. So for us, that begins with legal, protecting your product. From there, marketing your product. So we we bought two digital marketing agencies over the years. Of course, we've got core localization across all the different content types to, to support our customers' customers. And then we ran it out with the data. And I think that's the most exciting thing for our industry today. So if you believe that, Communication and effective communication as the heart, it's at the heart of all human interaction, whether it's personal, whether it's business. If that's not understood, relationships break up, uh, business relationships as well. So, where does our industry sit? If that's core, at the core of that is the data because it's all digitized now. In the beginning, we even, we even, Took faxes. You know, it was all it was all analog. Uh, now it's all digital, which means all of that natural language processing data, words in a data form. Our industry sitting on the treasure trove of of that data, and how we can use that to make communication better around the world uh, is the ability to change the world. So. It's a really exciting place for our industry to be right now.
1: You mentioned NLP. We're seeing a lot of NLP, I guess for lack of a better term, news uh, over the past couple of months, and we're trying to parse them uh, here with our team at Slater. All these large language models that are open source by companies like you know Facebook Meta and, and Google, et cetera. And then there's this kind of ecosystem of startups that are building all kinds of additional solutions on top of these powerful models how do you see this fitting into the kind of more traditional language industry do you think we understand where this is going do you think there's another wave coming that we need to catch or miss and just generally where do you see uh, this kind of powerful language ai going and and it how it's affecting you know the language industry but also of course we localize
0: we're in the wave already i would argue and and We're trying to stay, we're trying to ride that wave, things are changing. They're changing so quickly. And and of course the wave could crash and you could be caught up in it. And we've had those kinds of experiences because we try to stay on the edge of the, uh, edge of the wave. So NLP is, is a big part of that. Uh, You were talking about if if we could change an engine industry acronym, let's change CAT tool. I'll throw out another idea. Let's let's change LSP, language service provider, and let's call it NLP, natural language provider, because that's 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 what we've become. Uh, so, in that context, the ability to use use linguistic data. Let's take, for example, the convergence between product localization and product marketing. When I first got in the industry. We were talking to, uh, all our customers were product people. We never, got, we never got a meeting with marketing and because those were separate areas in, in the companies, they weren't really even communicating, but now those have converged. So when we see product localization and product marketing converging, then you can take, again, this language data, which our industry is fortunate to be sitting on And you can use it to help identify what's more effective in SEO, as an example. Is it short form language? Is it long form? Is it formal? Is it informal? Uh, What kind of reading level is it? And you can actually use your performance data, your Google Analytics or whatever products you might be using, and you can link it to experiments through algorithms with the linguistic data itself. So strategically, what we always wished for in the very beginning, 25 years ago, can we be a a deep partner for a customer, not just a project provider? My first big deal with Cisco was a project, but become a, a, a true partner. Well, now we're there.
1: How do you stay non, I don't know, maybe cynical is the wrong word, but like if you've been in the industry for 25 years, you've seen these hype cycles, You like, how do you avoid just thinking, well, this is just another thing that's going to pass and kind of do the risk assessment that, well, we should be on top of this, but we should probably not bet the farm on it. I don't know, it's hard to put that question into words, but like how do you stay balanced between making sure you're not missing out, but also not just going into the completely wrong direction? Because there's just so much happening and people have to prioritize, right?
0: I never believed the hype that MT was uh, going to change the world and, and put us out of business. Uh, i never bought into that hype. We're on our third private equity investor. And each time we met a, a potential new investor, that was the first question, is, is MT going to put you out of business uh no said back to your earlier point around uh re renaming cat tools it's another productivity tool so in that case i think you're correct you know that hype uh just never came to fruition and i think it's very important nlp technology it's just another nlp technology and it's very effective and We've got significant usage of it ourselves, uh, but is it going to radically change the industry? Uh, I think there's other things that will change it even more profoundly NLP uh, across the board rather than just that single NLP technology. What is it, what do I mean there? That's, that's using, because MT is, is training engines, uh, that's using the data to not just train a machine translation engine, but all kinds of predictive capabilities. So you can understand, for example, where's the risk in quality? Quality historically has been, I would argue, very wasteful because it's just random sampling. The algorithms should be able to tell us where exactly is the risk. And you can use the data and that can help point to Where might the risk be in quality? Where might the risk be in OTD? So is that hype? Definitely not, because that is mission critical to a company's business.
1: You mentioned private equity and you also said that you're on your third private equity investor. Why do you think? the role of private equity is so strong in the language industry. I mean, I'm obviously not an expert on many other industries, but in this one, it's like one third or maybe half of like the top 100 providers are owned by private equity. Why is that? What do they like about this industry and why are they so active?
0: You're right. I, I, I saw in your your reporting that it looks like about a third of the top 100 ranked by revenue are private equity backed in our industry now. And it's it's fun for me to see how far that's come. We were one of the first private equity-backed companies in history back in, in, in 2000. And I asked our our investors actually, and we had a board meeting last week. And I said I gave them that bit of information, and I said the other companies where you invest are there industries do they have so much private equity like this one? Uh, and they said no. So so you're right. Good question. Why is it? Uh, I think it's got a few of, the, think, few of the basics that all private equities like to see, private equity companies like to see. First of all, uh, is it a growing industry with a bright future? Yes. And it just keeps on growing. So great. We check that block. What happens when there's a problem? In other words, how uh, resilient is the industry to uh, downturns? So in the 08 financial crisis, when everything collapsed around the world, how did we do? We were flat. So we didn't decline. In COVID, everything collapsed around the world again. How did we do? We were flat again. So through both of the biggest challenges in the last 20 years, our company, and I think many others, the industry as a whole, weathered the storm. So great. You're growing. Great. If things go bad, you're, you're in good shape. Next area is technology. Can we, can we automate? Can we invest uh, to help improve uh, not just growth, but profitability as well? Absolutely. And then finally, is it an industry where we can consolidate? Private equity companies are very attracted to buy and build. And Relocalize has acquired 19 companies over the years in that context. That opportunity is still as big as it ever was. Yes, there's been a lot of consolidation, but there's still enormous amount of fragmentation and you'll see that consolidation continue. And we want to be one of those consolidation leaders.
1: There's new companies showing up on our radar, frankly. Like, you know, if you take the ecosystem seven years ago when we started with Slater, Yes, a lot of them have been acquired in the meantime, but there's just so much activity and so many small companies kind of rising to a certain level, and so many startups getting to a certain level. So it kind of there, there's these two forces, right? The consolidation coming through M and A, but then there's just the refragmentation by by new companies getting started. So it's uh, yeah, I think it's it's keeping us on our on our toes. Yeah. I, it is fascinating how, how active private equity is and how many are looking into the space. I mean, I think generally there's just a lot of private equity. I mean, that industry itself has experienced a lot of growth, but yeah, one third of probably the entire industry owned by private equity is probably quite unusual. I could
0: tell you our investors said it was. So we're, we're fortunate. We're, we really are. We couldn't be more fortunate to be in such a great industry. And it's an industry we love. We love what we're doing. Uh, we love the people we're working with, uh, so it's just a fantastic spot to be in.
1: You, you did mention m and I mean, what, you said what nine, you're at, at 19 acquisitions now? That's right. So, what's the playbook? Like how do you scout for deals? When do you, uh, I don't know, pounce? When do you buy something? What do you do after? Like is there a kind of an integration playbook? What are the typical challenges having gone through this 19 times?
0: If I could sum up the challenge in one word, it's trust. Building trust is the challenge. If you're able to do that, you get through the the ups and the downs of which there are many. Because anytime you're integrating, it's, it's, it's the same as being in a relationship. You, you're a personal relationship, you've got to compromise and those compromises are tough especially if you've been doing it the same way for so many years, and all of a sudden that way has to change on either side. And having the humility to be willing to do that, uh, which comes because you trust each other, you trust in the relationship. That's what we're trying to do. That's the brand I, I want We Localize to stand for, the most trusted brand in the industry, whether it be through with clients, with vendors, with staff, with acquisition targets. So what's the playbook? We come in and we try to build that. And what I tell everybody when I first meet them after we acquire a company is you don't know me, I'm not expecting you're going to trust me today, tomorrow. But if you're patient, if you're willing to give us a chance, then I pledge we'll earn that, we'll do our best and we're going to earn it. And more than half of our leadership team worldwide all came through acquisitions, including half our C team. So we proved
1: it's possible. Still here. Still here. You mentioned brand. You typically rebrand, right? You don't like you rebrand them into We Localize, or did you keep uh, a couple of brands um, on their own? We have
0: kept a couple on their own. We've got a brand for legal. Park IP and we have a brand for digital, uh, Adapt Worldwide.
1: What's driving the branding versus like rebranding versus not rebranding? Is there a particular logic behind it? Because if the brand's like super strong with a particular client segment or?
0: That's it right there. We don't want to confuse customers. And when we bought uh, Park IP here in New York, that's where I am today. And in that office, it was very strong brand. Park and RWS were two brand leaders in the IP space at the time, and we didn't want to confuse anybody, so we kept it, and off we went.
1: This is one of the one of the more challenging uh, um, parts. of The language industry to understand the whole IP space. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are, you are with it in, in the details. I mean, it's been this big change on the regulatory front in Europe, and uh, we're that's. That's later. We're trying to keep keep up to date, but it, this is a really difficult one. Like others, are easier to understand than than IP services. How was that for you? Buying that company, acquiring these capabilities, like and and kind of understanding it as a as a larger company, and then using the resources of a larger company to get ahead in that in that very complicated space.
0: I didn't understand it at all. I could I could remember because
1: <clears throat> um, RWS was
0: public. You could go learn whatever you wanted. And I'd heard about RWS. I'd heard about patent translation. And it was just interesting to see this, this hundred million company doing really well as a public company and started to get curious about that business because they were really the only game in town in that space at the time. So, did some research, our customers were, were asking about it. And that's kind of guided us from the very beginning but we started as a traditional localization company and have evolved into much more than that because customers asked us about it. So we, we investigated it, looked into it, found a great company, Park. We were fortunately able to acquire them. I think our DBS took notice on that one because they turned around uh, not long after and said, okay, we're going to get into localization. So we jumped into park, they jumped into Moravia. (laughs) So that was, that was an interesting tit for tat
1: and kept on evolving since then. Absolutely. Um, so now we're a little bit in more, I guess, uncertain times than maybe even just five, six months ago with, you know, war in Europe and the rising interest rates and, and just generally a bit more uncertainty macro wise. but. Like what are some of the initiatives and projects you have now for 2022, maybe next year? what are you working on and how does this maybe additional uncertainty kind of influence decision making or not?
0: Oh definitely influences uh, what's going on with the war in Ukraine and inflation around the world uh, are changing everything. This is a business cycle inflation which I've never had to to encounter or work with. Uh, last big inflation cycle uh, was in the seventies. So before we ever got into business, so this is new territory. How do we navigate through it? Uh, especially with, uh, the great resignation going on, uh, incredible pressure on wages. We've got to continue to create these relationships with, with people. Uh, so, how do we do that? We we have two people goals, and that applies to all people, staff, vendors, clients. Those two goals are first, prove we care, demonstrably care, can prove it, uh, and the second is answer the question, where can I go from here? Get a lot of talented people; they can work anywhere. And what reason can we give them to want to work here is because. In terms of where they can go, uh, it's the best, best place to be. We've got three OKRs in the company, objectives and key results. They are be the greatest growth opportunity, again, for everybody involved, investor, staff, customers, how customers grow. Be the easiest to, to work with. You mentioned the complexity and the different technologies. We're not there yet. Many of the things we're doing today are still not easy. So we've still got some ground to cover there. And then finally, be the greatest company. Be the greatest company in the industry, not necessarily by revenue, but by reputation. Uh, that's what we're shooting for, and I think that's how we navigate through these challenges. People want a safe harbor when times are are tough. I've been there. I was in the Gulf War, and I can tell you that back to our brand of trust, when the bullets are flying and you're in a foxhole, who do you want covering your back? And who are you going to trust to do that? That's stuck with me ever since. And that's how we get through this kind of challenge. Uh, and You don't have it with everybody, uh, but we work really hard to try to get, get it with as many as possible.
1: Always ask, uh, close at the podcast with a bit of crystal ball gazing. So next two to three years, let's assume we get through that uh, challenging period. Where, where do you see the language industry in two to three or pick your timeframe, five years, uh, how will we evolve Will it be very similar to what we do now or will it? are we kind of at the cusp of something uh, big and new happening?
0: We're definitely on the wave. We're definitely riding that wave, big, new, exciting things exciting things happening. I I, I don't think that's hype uh, because uh, what we'd always wanted in terms of the ability to automate and do exciting innovation through that, uh, we're not the only ones. There's lots of interesting innovation happening, especially around NLP. And that's going to change the way we communicate with chatbots, with digital assistants, uh, with appliances, with with our automobile, with all of these things that we use in our daily lives, uh, there's only two choices of an interface. You're either speaking to something or you're typing something into something. And both That's all, that's all you've got. In both of those, language is at the heart. And NLP technology, which is capturing whatever you say or whatever you speak, into the device is going to change the experience and uh, companies that really appreciate that and the importance of culture and and respecting culture through localization and and different quality levels of language, depending on the need, which could go from, of course, raw MT all the way to got to be exactly right, be able to do that at any point in time on any device in ever smaller increments for us the average task trans, translation task for us is less than 200 words and for our biggest customer there's 60,000 of those tasks that go through the pipeline every month so this is this is kind of change that's happening and our industry is at the center of it so i find that to be really
1: exciting 200 words is better than one word, so uh, maybe we'll, we'll get to the one word increment <laughs> at some point in time.
0: Maybe. You're right. Foot
1: Go full circle. Go full circle. Uh, all right, Smith, this was uh, fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time today to join us. Appreciate it, Florian. Thank you.